Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. So Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Um, Thank you, Lord, for for the way you have been revealing your mind to us in your word as we have journeyed, as we have gone on this journey. And today we're asking that you will do the same. Change our lives, Heavenly Father. Uh, Transform our lives, O God. Bring light into any, any area that there is darkness. Empower us, Heavenly Father. This is our last service as a family on a Sunday before we cross over, Heavenly Father. Prepare us, Father, for what is ahead. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Well, the title is an interesting one. Kill the monsters before they kill your dreams. Kill the monsters before they kill your dreams. If you turn with me to Numbers, uh, the 20th chapter, of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to read 13 verses of scripture. Um, Our teaching today centers around um, a a calamitous error that Moses made that cost him literally his dreams. Um, Numbers, the 20th chapter, read verses 1 to 13. Very quickly, this is the backdrop uh, for what we have to share. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Kadesh seems to be a a kind of boogie place for the children of Israel. If you remember, uh, we spoke about that. It was at Kadesh where they got news uh, of the promised land and where rather than believe God, they believed a negative report, an evil report, a bad report. Well, they were at Kadesh. Miriam, Miriam Moses' sister, died and was buried there. And the reason Miriam died was because God had said literally all of them would die um, apart from Joshua and Caleb. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. This, was, this is characteristic. This is normal. We expect it from the children of Israel, sadly. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. This was the major issue, no water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. First you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. You know, you just have to marvel at, at, at God's, God's grace and God's patience. Once again, they are complaining. 
you would imagine that God would say, I have had enough. But what does he say to Moses? He says, just, just solve the problem. Give them some water. Just take the symbol of authority, the rod, but speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, the rock will yield water. The congregation can drink till they are, till they are full and they can give water to their animals. And so Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And then he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed amongst them. God gave Moses very clear instructions. God said to him, gather the congregation, take your rod, your symbol of authority, your staff, but speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, the rock will, will yield water. Well, Moses by this time was so irritated, so angry with the children of Israel that when he got to the rock, he took his rod, but then he began to berate the children of Israel. Here now, you rebels, he said. This was a man who was angry speaking. And you know, you must, your heart goes out to Moses because you saw how many times along this journey he was provoked, but he restrained himself. But this was one provocation too many. He says, you rebels, he spits out at them. He then says, must we bring water for you out of the rock? Now, in his anger, he had stepped across a line. It was no longer God who was doing it. His anger, in his anger, he had somehow allowed the anger to see himself as elevated to a partnership with God. Must we, God and I, bring water for you out of this rock? And then he lifted his hand. By this time, of course, he was so enraged and he smote the rock. He hit the rock with the, with the rod. He forgot that God said, speak to the rock. He was so angry that he hit the rock not once, but he hit the rock twice. The provocation was intense and extreme, and he reacted to the provocation. Now, they did provoke him. It was an intense provocation. The psalmist actually records it. Psalms 106 verse 32. The psalmist says, They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. Because of them, he forgot 
what God had told him. That's not bad enough. I mean, that's, that's bad enough, but then at this level. But then not only did he forget, he spoke in a language that he should not have spoken that revealed his heart in that state of anger where he elevated himself to a level of a partnership with God. Must we? And then crucially, he didn't just speak to the rock, he struck it, not once, but twice. Now, the interesting thing is that God still allowed water to come out. The children of Israel still drank water. But then Moses now had an issue with God. And God now says to him, and this, is, this was God's judgment, because of what you have done, you will not be taking the children of Israel into the promised land. You didn't hallow me in their eyes. Therefore, you will not bring this assembly, Numbers 20 verses 12 to 13, into the promised land. Now that is a harsh judgment, you and I would say. Think about it. His dreams, what he had lived for all his life, as a young man, these dreams had started to form in him that he was going to lead his nation out of captivity. And when God spoke to him, God now told him after 40 years of tutelage in the backside of the des desert in Midian, God now told him that you're not just leading them out, you are taking them into the promised land. I, I want to take them into the promised land. And yet, all those dreams came crashing down simply because he allowed anger to take control of him. That's why I called it kill the monsters before they kill your dreams. What exactly was the problem? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, the harsh judgment. You and I might think it was harsh, but some understanding of some other things might, put, might, might, might bring into perspective why God reacted in that manner. You see, a lot of the Old Testament prefigured Christ. Some parts of it were very directly related to Christ, symbolic of Christ, pointing, foretelling, prefiguring something significant that was going to happen around our Lord and Savior. Those, those areas were, in a sense, extremely sacred. The whole of the Bible is sacred, but these had a particular application to Jesus Christ. Of course, we, last week we spoke about the bronze serpent, but this is another example. You see, because... The rock that brought water out was a picture of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. What was God showing us? He was showing us something that was to come, that there is a rock that is coming. 
And when you drink the water from that rock, you will never thirst again. He was prefiguring Christ and prefiguring the Spirit of God that from which we drink, and when we drink, we never thirst. And if you look at John, the seventh chapter, the Bible actually says this, John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was Jesus saying? That I am the rock. And when you come to me, when you believe in me, when you accept me as your Lord and Savior, I can quench your thirst. It's not a natural thirst. It's a spiritual thirst. Nothing can quench that thirst apart from Christ and apart from his spirit. You can try and fill it with every other thing. Drink as much of anything naturally you want. Do as much as you want naturally. Until people come to Christ, there's a hollow in each one of us that is shaped like Christ. And nothing can fit into that hollow except Christ. This was significant. The rock and the water coming out was prefiguring this. And when Moses struck the rock twice, he was striking Jesus twice. Jesus was struck once. The rock was struck once. And if you remember, if you cast your mind back along the journey, that at one point Moses struck the rock once. In the same way, the nails struck Jesus' palm once. The spear went into his side once. The thorns were pressed on his head once, once alone. And that was it. Now, in Moses' anger, he almost wanted to, in a sense, prefigure a second crucifixion of Christ. In fact, a third crucifixion because Apart from the one time that the rock was struck in the past and water came forward, came forth, when this water was needed from this rock, God said, don't strike it, speak to it. We've already done the striking. It's already prefigured the cross at Calvary. Once the nails will go into his hands, once the spear will be thrust in his side, once the crown will be pressed on his head, once he would shed his blood, that's it once and for all. It settles everything. In Moses' anger, he struck the rock twice. Three times now he had struck the rock and God's anger against him of course, came forth. And God said, it's, it's over. You know, come back home and I will find someone else to finish the assignment. You know, I pray for you that, and I pray for myself that we won't cross a line that will make God say, it's okay, come back home. Let somebody else continue the assignment. We will each finish our assignment. There are two things I want to bring home to you about what happened to Moses. Because of course, we want to identify the problem. How, how did a man like Moses get there? How did a man who, who, who God spoke to face to face, a man who spent 40 days with God, a man who was a friend of God, how did he get there? Because if we don't understand how Moses got there, then we can't deal with ourselves and make sure that these monsters don't kill our dreams. 
So we have to learn how to kill these monsters. But what are these monsters? If you turn with me to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. Please stay with me. Um, if, you were, if you haven't been staying with me, stay with me for the next so many minutes. This is going to totally transform your life. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Look at the way the Passion Translation puts it. As for us, we have all these good, all these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us. We must let go of every wound that has pierced us. And the sin we so easily fall into, then we will be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out for us. The path has been marked out for Moses. Your path, Moses, is to be the deliverer of these people out of Egypt and take them into the promised land. But then Moses, because of his actions, which, and we will look at how those actions apply, this scripture applied to those actions, he had those dreams terminated prematurely. That must not be your portion. That must not be my portion. And there are two things that are critical. There are two areas where Moses, as mighty as he was, failed. And you might say to yourself, how dare we talk about Moses' failure? Well, the truth is that we have the Spirit of God. We have the grace of God. We have the blood of Jesus. The truth is that we don't have to do it ourselves. So Moses can earn that greatness in a sense. We don't have to earn it. We just have to yield and submit. And the more we yield and more we submit, the more the Spirit does for us. Two things that are critical. Number one, the Bible says lay aside every weight. The, the Passion Translation says let go of every wound that has pierced us. You see, we are shaped by our life's experiences for good and for bad. When you meet a person, you are meeting the totality of that person's life experiences that have shaped them. You see, that's why, you know, I, I, I really sympathize with people who meet people and just marry them without the Spirit of God leading you, without praying like you're going crazy before you get into a man. Because the guy you meet who's wearing a nice suit or wearing some nice jogging bottoms, some Nike stuff and Nike trainers, who speaks so well, who has a nice job, who seems all together, you have no way of knowing what he's made up of because he's the sum total of 33 years of experiences if the experiences have been good experiences, then he's wholesome and secure. But if the experiences or some of them have been bad experiences and they haven't been dealt with, 
then what you are looking at is a facade. Behind the facade is a person who is carrying wounds. Wounds have pierced him or her. And the person that you want to relate to is not just the facade. It is the person behind the facade. And the person is either wholesome and secure or where the person has had a whole slate of bad experiences, the person is less wholesome and less secure or insecure. The person is wounded and you are going to deal with those wounds. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, set aside the weight because the wounds, the bad experiences are a weight. He says, lay aside the wounds that have pierced you. They have become a weight. They are heavy. You can't run the race that is described as fast as you should. Each one of us runs a race marked out for us. A marathon, one translation says. The lighter we are, the less wounds we have, the less weight we have, the faster we can run the race. So the Bible says, lay it aside. Now, Moses would be an amazing patient for somebody who was a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And you know, uh, so we have some brilliant psychiatrists in church. Dr. Delmi, I'm sure if you're watching, you will understand. Um, and some of our counselors, uh, uh, Dr. Zoe and Pastor Denrily, they'll understand Moses, Moses, Moses would have issues. I mean, think about it. He was born as a second-class citizen, literally to a family that was living under occupation. And at that point in time, a mass murder was going on in the society. They were killing everyone his age. The fear into which he was born, the fear in his community, who knows what fear that he had to encounter as he was born. And after three months, his parents couldn't keep him. The mother went and put him by the river, had faith that God would do something. Pharaoh's daughter comes along and takes him out and takes him home to her own house, breaks that link between child and mother. And the psychologist will tell us, the psychiatrist will tell us that that's created a problem already. And then takes him into the palace but then sends for his mother to come and look after him. So he grows up a prince, but then his mother is the servant. She can't sit at a table with him. She has to come and serve him. She has to curtsy and, 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 and bow and, and defer to Pharaoh's daughter and to him as her son, because now he was a prince of Egypt. The confusion in the young man's mind as he grew up why is my mother being treated like this? Why can't I sit down with, at the table with my mother? And then into this mix, when his mother had him, she'd be telling him stories about who he was. That you're not like them. You're a Hebrew prince. You're not an Egyptian prince. The tension in the, in the boy, as two things pulled at him in different directions. Who am I? He must have asked himself. Am I really an Egyptian prince or am I a Hebrew prince? 
The anger that must have started rising up in him every time they spoke to his mother in a way that belittled her. This is my mother. You can't speak to her like that. But he couldn't say anything because he was an Egyptian prince. And then one day he goes out and he sees an Egyptian maltreating uh, an Israelite, one of his people. He remembers the stories his mother told him. His calling actually rises up as a deliverer. And anger explodes and he kills the Egyptian. And suddenly the family that took him in and told him that he was a prince now become the hunters. He becomes a fugitive. He's running away from his half-brother. He can't go back home to the palace anymore. He runs away and eventually ends up in Midian with nothing. Rejected and dejected. The people who are supposed to love him have rejected him. He can't even reach out to his mother. He's lost everything that he knows. And he ends up in Midian. And just so that he can survive, he marries a Midianite. He knows that he shouldn't, but he marries a Midianite. And then lives for the next 40 years at the mercy of his father-in-law. His father-in-law employs him to look after his sheep. And a man who had a dream as a prince is become uh, a, a shepherd looking after sheep that are not even his own sheep. I'm sure you know that this man needed to see a psychiatrist. The wounds, the rejection, the pain, the humiliation, the humiliation of his mother and his family, the humiliation of his nation, the pain of being a fugitive, of seeing your dreams shattered before God speaks to him. This was a man who obviously had wounds. And periodically in the journey to the promised land, the children of Israel would poke deep enough and they would touch the wounds. My sister and my brother, if you don't deal with the wounds, the enemy will stir people up who will poke those wounds and make you react in a way that is carnal and is not godly. And it can have dire consequences as we saw. You've got to lay aside the weight. You've got to search yourself and see if there are any wounds as a result of past experiences that are seeking to go with you on this journey. And you've got to deal with it. If not, the enemy is going to find people who will provoke you by poking those wounds. Number two, the scripture says, deal with the sin which so easily ensnares the sin we so easily fall into. Now, it's, it's not just any sin. It is the sin that so easily ensnares. There is some connection to the sin. It's a bit beyond the ordinary. It's the sin that we so easily fall into. Now, why is it that particular kind of sin? There are a number of reasons, I will tell you. Number one, it is often generational. Don't let anybody tell you that there are no things that, that there are not things that pass down a generational line. They are. I should know. I know in my own life. There were certain things that I looked at in, in the generations of my fathers, my uncles, my grandfather, and I was told about my great-grandfather, and I'm thinking, how come all you guys have this? And I made up my mind that I'm going, 
I'm not going to carry it. I am going to be delivered from it. And it's not going down the line anymore. My son and my sons and his sons will not deal with these generational issues. But Moses had generational issues. I'm sure you remember that Moses is a Levite, which means that his ancestor was Levi. Now listen to what Joseph says as he's blessing his children. The blessing of his children in, in Genesis 49 wasn't a blessing of one person. He was speaking about generations. He was speaking in a sense prophetically. He was speaking about descendants, not just the people. Because when you read it, and there's no time to read the rest of it, you realize that he's not talking about one person, but he's speaking into the lineage. He's saying what is going to go down the line. Genesis 49 verses 5 to 7. This is what Jacob says as he speaks about Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That was a father speaking. He wasn't cursing them. He was saying, this is the problem. You people get too angry. Your anger isn't normal. He says it's cruel. He says you're overcome by the anger. And of course, you know what he was referring to. I'm sure you remember the story where their, their sister Shechem had, had raped their sister and how they set up a trap for him. They said to him, go and bring all your people and you can have a sister, but all your men should be circumcised. Now, you circumcise an eight-year-old child, is painful. You circumcise a grown man, it is mega painful. Of course, when all the men were circumcised, um, without being graphic, they really couldn't move. They were really hamstrung and so Simeon and Levi went in and slaughtered every single man. So much so that their father, Jacob, said, you have created a stench. You have made us smell in this area. These are people who treated us well because of your anger. So what was he saying? This anger is a, is a generational thing. And I'm sure you know what happened. I'm sure you saw that, they, uh, pardon me, Moses displayed that same anger. He kills an Egyptian. Exodus 22, verses 11 to 12. You know, to kill a man is not, uh, you know, it's not, <laughs> you didn't just drink a cup of tea and kill a man. Something took over him and made him kill the man. God writes on tablets of stone with his own fingers. In his anger, as he comes down from the mountain after 40 days with God and he sees the, the, the debauchery that is going on in the camp, the, the immorality and the, around the golden calf. In his anger, he smashes tablets that God wrote on with his finger. I'm sure you know 
that in the pits of hell, they were dogging him as they dog all of us. They on, you know, I was saying to my wife, Shola, that in hell they have massive computers that are programming all kinds of things. They are programming backwards and programming forwards. They are trying to tra- create tracks and traces. And they must have been following him thinking, we're going to get him. This anger is going to be his downfall. For anybody to smash tablets that God wrote on, And then he didn't just smash it. He takes the tablets. So what kind of anger? You smash it. You are so enraged. You pick the pieces up. You grind it to powder. And you pour it into the water system of the camp. And say to them, for this thing you have done, you will drink. You uh, you know, pardon me. He takes the golden calf, not the tablets. He gets the golden calf. He crushes the golden calf. He puts it in the water system of the camp and he says to them, for what you have done, worshiping this calf, I mean, I I, I just want that kind of anger. He says, this calf you have worshiped, you will drink it. You know, some people are like that. I will show you. I will teach you a lesson. I will show you who I am. You better be careful because that's a sign of anger. And so he says to them, you will drink this calf. And he puts the ground powder of the calf in their water system and makes them drink it. I'm sure in hell, their computer system was saying tracking, tracking, tracking. And eventually, he gets to Exodus. God says, speak. He's so angry with the people. I'm sure by that time, the computer system in hell hell must have started bleeping or beeping because it was near the end. They knew they had him. He hadn't dealt with what came from his ancestor Levi. It eventually overtook him. The rest is history. And you know, these things must have been, there were warning signs, but the signs were not dealt with. If you don't kill gremlins, gremlins become monsters. So when they're gremlins, kill them. There are are certain things that you just deal with. And when Jesus gives us a picture of how we deal with it, it is ruthless. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, some, 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 some expressions of faith think it's a physical. No, no, no. I can cut my hand off, but in my heart, I am still seeing naked women dancing on my heart. My hand has nothing to do with my heart. Jesus wasn't talking about the hand. I can be as, as evil in my heart as, 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 as is possible. And you can take my eyes out. I don't need my eyes to imagine evil in my heart. What was Jesus saying? It was a metaphor for deal ruthlessly with it. So kill the gremlins. The gremlins will become monsters if you don't kill them. Deal with it ruthlessly. Sometimes you've got to take ruthless actions. Some relationships, you don't, you, in your interest, the relationship should die. You will go to heaven. Nobody's going to stop you from going to heaven. On the contrary, heaven will understand that your ruthlessness was to ensure that you arrived at your destination. There are certain actions that we must take. You can't say to an alcoholic to walk by a pub. No. If there's a longer route, take the longer route. Because walking by the pub is unnecessary. People inviting you out and they're drinking around you is unnecessary. 
We have to be ruthless and not accommodate it because it will eventually ensnare us. And there are warning signs along the way. God will warn us over and over and over before that kind of judgment comes and our, and our dreams, our destination, we are taken taking out of the pictures for somebody else to finish the journey. There'll be enough warning signs. And we must understand that if we don't kill the gremlins, when they become monsters, they are more difficult to kill. But even then, we can still kill them. If we don't kill the monsters, then we, can, we should understand that we're what we call a sitting duck. It's just a matter of time. Those monsters are going to get us. That's what happened to Moses. A great man with a great destiny had his destiny terminated prematurely because he didn't deal with these monsters, the wounds in his heart, obviously not completely dealt with. The sin that so easily would, have, would ensnare him Obviously not dealt with. You know, you, we can't accommodate certain things. If you understand the journey, then you can't accommodate certain things. There, there, there's freedom to go anywhere, but there's some places that you don't go to. There's some places that you won't find me in. Because to find me in those places, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm ready for that. <laughs> I'm very aware where I'm coming from. And I cannot go to certain places. It, it awakens things that I think are, should have died. So sitting there is just setting myself up for a fall. There are certain people that you just can't hang around. There are certain things that you just can't do. Everybody else can do it, but you know that I can't afford to accommodate this in my life. It is too costly your dreams, your aspirations, your goals, your destiny, it is too costly. It cost Moses a lot. Numbers 27 verses 12 to 14. As we come to an end. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into this Mount Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. I mean, that's that is one of the saddest things that I have read in the Bible. God said to him, Moses, climb the mountain. Look, that was your destination. That's the plan I had for you. But you're not going to do it. You'll have to choose someone else. And if you read the next few verses, he actually chooses Joshua. And it's instructive that Moses didn't argue with God. Moses and God understood themselves. Moses knew that uh, this, this, was one, this was one step too far. This had to do with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I, didn't, just, I didn't just blow it. You know, I, 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 I could have messed up the whole thing. 
Uh, and so Moses didn't even bother to argue. Moses was, you know, who do we choose? Joshua, let me anoint him, let him get on with it, and let me just go and be with you. And you know, it's interesting that Moses and God still continued their relationship as deep as it was, because I'm sure you know, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the two people who came physically were Moses and Elijah. So uh, it, it was just that God was saying to him that, no, 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 you've crossed the line, just come back home. I, I, I wonder what his emotions were as he stood on that mountain and looked at the lush promised land, looked at the, at the vegetation, uh, the fruits he could see, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he knew that I should have been the one taking them in. But because I had not dealt with the wounds and dealt with the sin that so easily ensnares, I wasn't ruthless with those things. Maybe he was consumed by the work, by leading the children of Israel, that he hadn't looked inwards, he hadn't dealt with it. He hadn't been ruthless in dealing with, that, with those things. He hadn't maybe not fully understood that I, I've got to get rid of Levi. I, can't, I simply cannot have my teeth on edge because Levi ate sour grapes. I can't do that. That was Levi's issue. I don't intend to carry it forward. And I'm sure somebody will be asking, so how do we do that practically? Well, I think you're going to have to wait till the 10th of January. Uh, when I will be telling you how to make sure that you are not ensnared by that sin and that you deal with the wound in your heart. The practical way from the Bible to do so. Amen. Let me end with this scripture. Um, first, first Corinthians 10 verse 11. All the tests they endured on the way through the wilderness are a symbolic picture an example that provides us with a warning so that we can learn through what they experienced. For we live in a time when the purpose of all the ages past is now completing its goal within us. All this I've said about Moses is for one reason, a symbolic picture, an example that provides a warning to us that we should learn from Moses' experience. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you and we bless you. The Bible speaks about the rock, Jesus being that rock. And living water flows from that rock. And whoever drinks of that living water will never thirst. The truth is that you find out in life that nothing satisfies. You think it does for a short while, but after a while you find out that there's still a yearning and a thirst. Those who have money, tell you that money doesn't satisfy. That's why the, some of the richest people can commit suicide because they are thinking it, it hasn't given meaning to life, no purpose to life. Nothing gives purpose to life apart from Jesus. And so if you're out there, this is three, four days to the end of the year. Don't cross over. Don't come to the end of the year without having defined, decided that you, you want purpose in your life. The only way to have purpose is to receive Jesus into your life. And so if you would do so wherever you are, why don't you say this prayer with me? It's as simple as that. And just receive him in, into your life and let him reorder your life, give purpose to your life. Why don't you say after me, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the word that you have sent. 
Thank you because as I receive Jesus into my life, I receive the grace to run my race and finish it well. I open up my heart for him to come in as my Lord and Savior. I commit my life and I commit myself to living in obedience to him as Lord and Savior. Almighty and everlasting God, I turn away from anything that I might have done or I'm doing that is displeasing to you. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. I declare by faith that I am now born into your family, a child of yours. Today, I am born again. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, I want us to say a prayer from the bottom of our hearts. You know, um, as I prepared this message, my heart cried out to God. My cry to God was, God, help me. Please help me to run my race and to reach my destination. The Bible says the race is marked out for us, is marked out for you. God forbid that because we haven't dealt with what I have just shared with you, we cross a line and the heavens decide that it's one crossing too many. It's time to come home. Because you see, ultimately for them, home is what matters. So we are the ones who worry that we went home at this time or that time. For them, home is all that matters. They would rather have you home than run the risk of you not coming home. And so we just want to pray that, Father, give me the grace, the wherewithal spiritually, the strength, Father, to deal with the wounds. Help me, Father, to, since you wove me together, show me the areas where there are wounds, even those areas that I don't know. And then we want to pray, Father, help me to cut myself off from the sin that so easily ensnares. What are we praying? We are saying, Father, give me the grace to kill the gremlins. And if they've become monsters, to kill the monsters before they kill my dream. Now, will you say that prayer wherever you are? You're probably at home. Now, just lift up your voice. Pray from the sincerity of your heart. And I will pray that the Spirit of God will come upon you where you are. Revelation will come. You will start to see things that you had never, you had never seen before. Take notice of things that you hadn't taken notice of. Uh, revelation will come your way. The Bible will start to come alive for you. To be, give you a sword. To fight. And fight from that place of victory to arrive at that destination. Go on, lift, lift up your voices and just begin to pray. Cry out to the Lord. You see, we're asking for help. If the Lord does not help us, then we can't run this race and finish that race. The enemy is out there, an organized hierarchy, trying to trip us up, trying to make sure we fall and stay fallen. God has to help us. And if we cry out to him, he will help us. So go on, lift your voice and just begin to cry out to him. Father, we just ask that you will hearken to our cry, hear our cry, hear our prayers. We cry from the depths of our hearts. Father, God forbid, we say you forbid, Heavenly Father, that we should find ourselves 
ourselves where Moses found himself. Just before he entered the promised land, the enemy got him. That would not be any one of our portions. We can say that, Father, with certainty because, Father, we have what Moses did not have. We have your son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection. We have the Spirit of God, your Spirit in us. As a result, we can declare that we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. We are more than overcomers. Help us, Heavenly Father, to do what we need to do, to allow your Spirit to do what your Spirit needs to do. Almighty and everlasting God, I pray for everyone who is watching and listening. I pray that none of us will be victims, oh God, of the enemy's plans. None of us will fail to reach that destination. None of us will be, have our, our destinies prematurely cut off, Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you and we bless you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Thank you for that rock that we drank from and continue to drink from that quenched our thirst and continues to quench our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.